This is a new public service podcast brought to you in full by Hachi the Hack. Hachi the Hack probably gives a f- what you think. If you don't like it, then you can find another means of entertainment. Little did you know upon giving this a chance, you have just found the best thing about lockdown. Hachi the Hack is fed up with the media and government sh- and may well let rip. Anything else? I guess followed and enjoy the podcast. Hello again, troops and troopettes, and thank you for choosing to listen to episode 9 of my Corona podcast with me, Hodgie the Hack. Now, the mission of this podcast, as regular listeners will know, is to inform, entertain and engage on a variety of topics as a means of staying sane within this pandemic. And, of course, Boris Johnson has just announced that the social distancing parameters in England are being reduced. So, as ever, plenty to talk about. But the next topic that we're going to tackle on the pod is a biggie. And it's the UK government's decision to abandon its own COVID-19 track and trace app, which was being developed, NHSX. Now... Full disclosure, a month ago I spoke to various experts about all of the whys and wherefores of the app in a podcast which, for a variety of reasons, ended up not being published in the end. But such was the quality of the discussion that despite the state of play changing completely, I think it makes sense to put out the entirety of that discussion as it was recorded when the landscape looked as it did a month ago. So this episode, as a result, is going to kind of be structured in two parts. It will be a bit like... You could maybe say a wee before and after documentary in some senses in that regard. So in part one, which will be this first episode, I'm going to start with what was. How the state of play was a month ago when the government were going full steam ahead with the app. Then, for part two, which will be released later this week, I've got two speakers coming on to discuss the government's decision to abandon the app in the end and where that leaves us moving forward. So... I needed some background in terms of what it was all about. So before we got into the main thrust of the podcast, I decided I would have a quick word with Romilly Broad. Romilly Broad is CEO of Digital Bulletin, which is a publication I'm involved in, which is the industry leader at telling stories of digital transformation within business. So real experts on the topic of cutting-edge digital technologies. And I spoke to Rom and got him to tell me how the now obviously abandoned technology was supposed to work. And again, this was back when the government were still going ahead with it. So let's hear from Rom about just exactly how it was supposed to work. So it's it's interesting and it's interesting because it's slightly different perhaps to what other countries are doing. Um, And in contrast to what uh, the headlines that are being generated by the likes of Apple and Google, who are you know, obviously between them own pretty much everybody's phones, whether it's Android or, or iOS. What NHS X has decided to do is create a centralized app. And that's different to a decentralized app, which is what Apple and uh, Google are working on. And right at the heart of that decision is privacy. So Apple and Google have said, well, look, there's no way we can ever deploy any kind of app, especially in somewhere like the States that may impinge on people's right to privacy. Um, what NHS X have done have said, well, no, actually, this only really works for us as a national institution if we can harvest all of this data and then use it and then by analysing it to understand what's happening in the population. Both of those are completely coherent, sensible arguments. So what NHS X has done 
is create an app that fundamentally sits on your phone. It uses Bluetooth to communicate effectively with other devices that it's passing uh, on the street during the course of the day. Um, the app will allow people to self-report their symptoms and things like that. Um, that doesn't seem like a very robust way of collecting accurate information, but I think that's what it does for now because it's, I think, probably impossible to patch it into actual clinical diagnostic sources of data. It's just a fragmented and nightmarish landscape of that stuff. Integrating with that in a short period of time, not going to happen. So you self-report your symptoms. Um, you tell it whether you're isolating or whether you're you know, recovered or whatever uh, and how you're feeling, etc your phone effectively broadcasts that information in an anonymous way and anybody who's walking around or nearby will uh, that you know it will ping their phones with that with that information all of that data then gets um hoovered up by uh, the nhs itself into a central um onto a central server in the cloud somewhere that can then be analyzed and used um first of all to make recommendations on a personal level to those people um you need to go home and hide and not see anyone for 14 days or whatever the advice might be. Mm -hmm. um, but they'll also be able to look at it on a population scale and say, and hopefully therefore measure how well this is going um, on, on a national level or regional or very local level, potentially key to that of course, is getting enough people to install the thing and it won't be mandatory. You can go and get it. They need, I reckon, you know, depending on what you read, you need about 50, 60% of, all people to actually download and use this thing um, before you get kind of statistically useful results. Um, the controversy of the whole thing is, is to do with, is that secure and is it going to involve us turning into some kind of Orwellian nightmare state where the government knows everything about everybody? The truth is no, it's not. Um, and also it's very secure. Um, a particular, particularly well-regarded professor described the encryption in this app as a thing of mathemati mathematical beauty. Um, it's encrypted to the eyeballs, basically, and fully anonymized, and people need not feel insecure about using it. Um, the biggest risk point is probably the place that all that data ends up getting stored. It's going to be one place somewhere, and therefore, potentially, uh, it could be compromised, at which point you've got all of that information um that seems like a, a remote kind of risk though so i'm not sure how big a deal that is uh, it's and then of course you've got the question of liberty and privacy uh, a lot of people are going to be pretty uncomfortable about a government whether it's acting in good faith or not knowing all of that information about the very specific movements of individual people um it is anonymized though and I think it's important to know that the, you mm. know, the, the, the data anywhere is not going to be, um, I identify people personally. I don't think I might be wrong. Um, in which case, um, maybe the usefulness of it, if you're an autocratic government is limited. Um, <laughs> but still it's going to make people uneasy. Is it going to make enough people uneasy that they don't install it? And therefore you don't get to the 50, 60% that you need. Time will tell. It's a kind of risky move that said, is it any better? To give the same information potentially to Google uh, or Apple, um, who knows? That and that really is the only other approach um, which Google and Apple are deploying. Essentially, they put some software on your phone. Your phone can, uh, using Bluetooth as well, understand what's going on with other phones in terms of what those phones are telling you about the infectiousness or not of people around you, and then and then tell you um, just 
just you. Uh, actually, you've just had a near near brush with you know someone that's infected, and you might want to behave differently as a result. Um, but that information then doesn't get transmitted to any central store, uh, you know, um, data lake that can then be examined or analysed. So it's safe from a privacy point of view, arguably of limited value from a uh, a pandemic point of view, uh, because what's what's the use in the end of of having you know that app out there that and it's only working on a kind of individual level we'll no doubt return to that question in the main thrust i.e part two of the podcast but now for the rest of episode nine part one as i told you i'd like to play the rest of that previously recorded podcast between the main two guests now the reason i feel it carries such value is that although at the time we were all invested in everything moving forward at that point I felt my guests provided a really well-balanced view of all the positives and the negatives, the potential benefits and the major concerns around the NHSX app should the government have moved forward with it. And I think in terms of contextualising the whole discussion, that's important. So for that first pod, I was joined by Amanda Brock, who's CEO of Open UK. She has a background in law, as well as obviously open source programming, which is what our company's all about. But as well as that, Amanda knows Terence Eden, who's head of open technology at NHSX itself, personally. Now, just to avoid confusion, NHSX remains the health services name for its innovation arm, even after the abandonment of the app. But you can see why speaking to Amanda was was very good for the podcast and why she carried a lot of weight as a guest. And the great news is she's going to be back with us in part two of this episode. But the first voice that you're going to hear is that of Jonathan Martin, who's a partner director at Anomaly, which is a leading company in intelligence-driven cybersecurity solutions. And although he can't join us for part two, unfortunately, I asked him, bearing in mind again that this was recorded a month ago when things looked very different, I asked him what people needed to be most aware or wary of in security terms in the midst of that the pandemic, just members of the public, what they should have been thinking about. I think, I think the, the thing that most people will identify with is suddenly the volume of, of uh, um, former office workers who are now based at home. And mm-hmm. suddenly, having to having to understand that you know the home uh, DSL connection is 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 probably not the best thing in the world. It may not provide the it almost certainly doesn't provide the level of security they need. Um, the whole the whole working environment is has been completely turned on its head. And I suspect that you know, most organisations are not necessarily thinking in terms of security when they when they've suddenly pushed all their um, the the office-based workers uh, out out back into the uh, in, in into the homes and uh, bedrooms, etc. I think I think we've seen on things like the you know, the the the, uh, the news broadcast of people broadcasting from home with lots of things in the background that may be may be providing you know keys to attackers as to how to how to develop phishing attacks against those individuals because suddenly you can understand a lot more the home environment, what it is they they are interested in from their bookcases. But suddenly, people are suddenly revealing a lot about their personal lives that they, they've never, never really done before. And they're doing it accidentally. 
Yeah, I think there's maybe a lack of awareness amongst members of the general public with regards mm. to just how vulnerable they are simply by being on a Skype call that may get broadcast or, or shared somewhere. Yes, exactly. And, and you don't know, uh, well, well, you don't necessarily know who else is on the call. You, know, you, you kind of assume that it's, it's your work colleagues, but you, you can't guarantee that. We've, we've seen with things like Zoom and, and, you know, and all, all the other uh, tools as well that they're not necessarily the, the most secure things in the world. And they're, they're, they're being subject to a lot more attacks now. So the, the, uh, the um, vulnerabilities in those tools are suddenly being discovered and, and exploited. Is that something that the, the people developing the app are cognizant of, would you say, Amanda, from, from what you know? Is that something that they're taking into account when they're, when they're busy pulling all of the different strands of this together? Yeah, of course it is. I think it's something that Jonathan is much more equipped on a security basis to talk to than I am. But of course they are. And whether that's in the UK or anybody, anywhere else in the world, you know, one of the things that um, sort of strikes me about this whole process and then the public lens on things like the app being tested mm. is that people are judging and they're judging something that they don't necessarily fully understand. So without being patronizing, they're judging a testing process for an app, not understanding that when you test something, it's not final and it's something that's ready to go to market. You know, I happen to know that the NHSX app was, um, was modified after the testing at the RAF base before it went out in the Isle of Wight. Now, it may be modified again after the Isle of Wight and it may be dropped. You know, we work in agile environments where things fail fast. Mm. On the other hand, they may make further improvements and decide that it's something fantastic and, you know, the right thing to be using. So uh, I think that's something that the, the media in particular um, have a, a very skewed lens on and maybe aren't giving people the right understanding of what testing is. Yeah, I think it's because I, I can't think of any other software which has been tested so publicly and, and been under such mm -hmm. public scrutiny at, the, at this stage of the process. So I think that's something that has to be borne in mind. Um, with regards to the idea of maybe dropping it, how, how would that go then? Is this, is this just one of many sort of prototypes that, that could sort of be moved forward? Why is it the one that everyone is focusing on? Just because yeah. it's the one with NHS in the title? Is that, is that it? Do you know, if you don't mind, Jonathan, I have a couple of things to say on that. Um, sure, no problem. Yeah. And uh, this is not because I happen to know Terence, let me be really clear on this. I've done quite a bit of writing, so I've done quite a bit of research around these apps. And when you look at them, the Netherlands and Italy, both, um, I've been praising them for both saying that they were gonna go open source. But I happen to know talking to people who are working on those infrastructures, that at the time they said they would open source, neither government had anything to show. Right. So they hadn't, I, I think Italy had commissioned a proprietary app and then gone back and changed it so that it was going to be open source, but it hadn't been built. Now, you've probably seen The Guardian and the BBC in the last 12 hours have talked about Apple and Google, Gapple, as I'm going to call them mm. for this conversation. <laughs> so Gapple, um, 12 hours ago, released their API. Yep. We had an app being tested on the 5th of May. We had an app mm -hmm. open sourced, I think, on the 7th of May, or the front end anyway. You know, the, the NHSX work has been rapid and they have got something to that market testing stage really fast. Now, the UK's had such a, a, a difficult time. You know, we have such a high instance of um, uh, positive tests and a, a really sad high death rate. 
that of course there's a lot of focus on us and there's a lot of controversy around the UK. But sort of put that aside, whether this is the right solution or not, I think it's incredible that the NHSX guys have got that out there, been through one set of testing, doing the second test, test, uh, second set of testing in the Isle of Wight, and potentially would be ready to roll it out in a few weeks. I think um, the Apple release said there were 22, or the Apple release said there are 22 states and countries, Germany being one of them, South Carolina, saying that they are going to test this app. But that's, what, several weeks, maybe months after the NHSX app was in that position. Yeah, is there a concern, and I'll ask this to you, Jonathan, that maybe they're moving a little bit quickly, or do you think they deserve lauded for getting to this stage so soon? I, I actually don't think it's about being fast. I think it's about being right. Um, as, as, uh, as, as Amanda said, we're, actually, you know, we're, we're almost playing with, with people's lives here, and it's about... It's it, it's about hitting the it's 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 a it's a it's a hole in one in in golf parlance. It's it's hitting the jackpot first time. We it it has to be it has to be right. It has to be the right thing. If if the government decided to to throw away the the existing app and start again in four weeks' time, that would be an absolute disaster because we would you know we would be so far behind everybody else. So the, it's not about doing it quickly. It's about it's about getting it right and. What but Jonathan, they're doing both at once, right? So the focus is on the NHSX app being tested in the Isle of Wight, but we are interacting, yeah. as I understand it. There's a, an outsourced company, at least if what I've read is uh, correct. You know, I don't have any inside track on this, but there is, I think it was always, and the, the Secretary of State for Health gave evidence saying this, that they would always look at, the, they wouldn't completely dismiss Google and Apple, even although they would steam ahead with the NHSX app and the, our, our UK app. But at the same time, we would still participate in looking at whether or not the other app was the best alternative, right? So I think they've hedged our bets. Mm. So why aren't, why aren't we testing two apps at the moment then? Why are we only testing one? Well, the API from um, Google and Apple only came out yesterday. So I don't think it was ready to test until today, from what I understand. Okay. Mm. Well, one of the aspects that interests me is uh, there was some new research that came out uh, in the last couple of days, actually, uh, at the time of recording. It's from researchers at the University of Warwick, Warwick easy for me to say, and the University mm -hmm. of Birmingham. Uh, and that seemed to show that the public have massive trust in the NHS as a brand, as a name. And the idea that the NHS is the NHS who has control and access to the data in the COVID-19 contact tracing app, that seems to be something that has a lot of public trust. The research team found that half, more than half of the participants, just over 57%, favoured prioritising controlling the pandemic over people's privacy. And that was a very, very interesting sort of finding for me, with around a fifth, by the way, favouring protecting privacy over controlling the pandemic. So I think that says a lot about the public psyche in terms of where they're at with the, the idea of this app coming in. Now, before we get into the nitty gritty of the app itself, is do, do you think that data sort of seems to back up what you guys have found in terms of what you've read and what, what you've sensed from the public at this point? Ooh, that's a really tough question to answer. Um, I mean, both are hugely important. I think that's the, that's the issue is that, you know, clearly we want to, to manage the infections and get them down as quickly as possible. But 
know, to you know, at the same time, we clearly need to protect people's privacy. Um, it, it's I, I don't think you can you can say one is more important than the other. I mean, you, sure, you can say you know, deaths are, are clearly the most important thing. We need to reduce that, but people's privacy and um, has has a, has a huge effect as well on 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 potentially everyone in the world. So. Um, they are both hugely equally as important. Mm. Any views on that, Amanda? Yeah, it's such a difficult one, isn't it? Um, yeah. I was really cross. Somebody retweeted one of my articles and they said, Amanda Brock says that, you know, the only solution is contract tracing apps. And it's absolutely not what I'd said. And I was very clear, you know, in my response to them that it wasn't. It's a part of it. And it's, I think, an inevitable part of it now in the state of technology that we would have these track and trace apps. But my sort of immediate gut reaction when, I think it was Easter Sunday, listening to Matt Hancock on the, the briefing, um, and he, he did say that the app would be public, you know, the software would be public, which made me feel a little bit better, although he didn't actually say it would be open source. But mm -hmm. he, he said this app was going to track and trace me. And, you know... I don't feel personally entirely comfortable with that. And I know that my views might be skewed because I spend a lot of time with people who work in free and open. Mm. On the other hand, you've got this balance, right? There's this sort of moral thing making you want to sign up to contribute and be part of the bigger uh, response, the bigger fight against the virus. And we sort of all have this moral obligation to participate. I think also beyond that privacy and moral thing, there's this concern that you're going to get a message, particularly like me living in the city, right? If I go out, every time I go out, I'm going to get a message telling me that I've been in contact with somebody. You know, I happen to live in a borough that's the, the fifth highest um, in the death rates in the UK. So every time I go out, am I going to get a message putting me back into quarantine for two weeks? How's that going to work? Mm. No, it's, it's an interesting Sorry. question. Well, and I think actually it's one of the reasons that they've gone with the uh, the the, the um, centralised approach, so that when they respond to you, they are looking at whether you really need that level of response. You know, have you been close enough to somebody that the risk factor is so high you're going to have to go back into either, uh, you know, an individual or an area being in lockdown? Mm. Jonathan, did you have something to add there? Yeah, I, I think I think it's it's a huge uh, uh, potential problem. Um, one of the things I wrote about re recently, or exactly this, is how that can be abused. So you know, foreign state, nation state actor develops an app that just beacons out saying the the, the person carrying it is is infected in Oxford Street or you know or wherever you, whichever. Um, street and so, so, so just to confirm ju just to confirm this so this is someone you're saying maybe from a foreign country who's who's developing mm. software which is designed to to basically get people's data and to to pose as something that it's not yeah well not not just to um to get people's uh data often but just to cause issues it's a it's you know a, as we'd say in the security world it's, a, it's kind of a denial of service attack you're you're you are telling thousands of people in a very short space of time that they've potentially been infected and that they need to, they need to go home and self-isolate. So, so if you've got a number of people in a major city doing that, <clears throat> you can actually force people off the streets relatively quickly and, and instill 
you know, a certain amount of panic that, that everything has gone wrong and, and the virus is spreading like wildfire, when in fact it's not. It's actually you know, a rogue, a rogue um, group of attackers. Mm. I hadn't thought about that, Jonathan. That's really interesting. And it sort of fits with that whole debate around mm. centralised versus decentralised, right? So when you have mm. the, the, the UK's approach is a bit more controversial because it's not the same as Google and Apple's and having this sort of centralised uh, database of those uh, harvesting anonymous data, they're able to sort of gatekeep and curate to some extent their responses rather than everybody who's been in touch with each other, having a, a, a decentralized interaction between their phones, where the phone decides to tell the other phone effectively. Okay, can you explain this for our listeners just in a bit more detail about the difference between the two as well? Um, because yeah, I, think, okay. I think a lot of people will be like centralized, decentralized. What, what does that mean? So can, can you delineate that a bit for us? Well, I mean, Jonathan may want to go into more detail than me. You know, I'm not a developer, but the way I understand it is that both apps do roughly the same thing. And the reason they do it is that unlike a lot of um, viruses that have happened in the past, people are often asymptomatic or they don't know that they they have COVID for a number of days. The incubation period is quite long. So it's more than possible you've had contact with people without knowing that you had the, the virus, you didn't have symptoms at the time. Hmm. So it's a way for people that have come into contact with you while you potentially were carrying it and passing it on without knowing to be notified. And the, the decentralized approach is that the phones sort of interact and speak to each other. So my phone will take my anonymized data and have the IDs for the other phones and will okay. connect over Bluetooth and tell them. Whereas with the centralized, it goes back to a database. And because it goes back to a database, I'm not saying this will be done manually, but there is some learn level of discernment and they look at the strength of the contact between the connections so where you're very close where you're close for a long time that kind of thing mm -hmm. as opposed to every single interaction and they they look at that risk rate um and then they can take a decision so over time they might decide that people who have well, let's use one or two as the risk factor need to be told to stay at home and people who have 0.5 or under one don't need to be whereas you, you have less discernment around that risk factor with the the decentralized but the thing with the decentralized like google and apple is that it's not perceived at least as going back to a central database i believe it still does go over the cloud and somebody still does have access to the data mm. but it's not perceived as going back to this database well so much data is held in data centers now I, i'm just wondering if the vulnerability is the same or if it's not i mean what's your view on that jonathan I think um, both uh, approach of, uh, approaches have potential issues. Um, there, there, there isn't a, you know, a, a single way of doing this right. It's, um, it's, it's you know, some some ways are better at some some things. The, the centralized uh, option has certain benefits. You know, you, you, I, I would I would absolutely say that most wherever this this um, data center is, I'm sure the security there is absolutely amazingly good because that's what most data centers live and die on mm. um but you know but all that data is in a single place and can be mined could potentially be mined for other things as well you know I, um one of the things i talked talked about is scope creep and how eventually i, I could see this app um be becoming an identity card almost because it, it, you know, it, it could potentially have things like 
uh, um, a health passport on it. You know, you, have you got antibodies? Are you okay to travel? There's a whole range of things that, that could be added into the app at some point, which could then be um, used, abused, monetized by you know, organizations in the uh, future. So um, the, the, the decentralized approach gets, a, uh, gets away from that, that sort of thing because you haven't got all that data in a single place, but it just introduces a different set of issues. You are, you're relying on the handset. You're, you're actually relying on everybody having an up-to-date mobile phone. So, you know, yeah. it's, it's great that, 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 that Gapple, I, I like that, it's great that Gapple <laughs> have introduced this, but what percentage of the over 60s say are going to have a phone that is capable of doing that? And yeah, the most yeah. Yeah, vulnerable group. I think that's a very important point. And can I just say, I love the fact that we've um, we've got Gapple. I, th- I think we should trademark <laughs> that by too, the yeah. end of this conversation. Mm. <laughs> you know, the, the, what you're saying there is really important, Jonathan. Um, the the digital inclusion doesn't just apply to this app. You know, we've been doing some work on the education side at Open UK, and so many kids are being taught from home. Even yep. relatively affluent people often don't have enough tech available for every child to be on their own device. And of course, that as you go down the affluent scale, that becomes more and more of a problem. One of the things that I have looked into is around uptake, because they've talked about needing an uptake of ideally 60%, and WhatsApp only has mm. 67%. Um, particularly when you look at the, and that's after 10 years with WhatsApp, but if you mm-hmm. look at um, the older population, which I'm heading towards rapidly, the, the, <laughs> the percentage of uptake in the sort of over 50s gets lower and lower in the apps. And I know that was a concern. And I think the way that's sort of being addressed is that in particular in the UK, they focused on making sure that the app works well across um, smartphones. Now, obviously, it's not going to work in a feature phone, but most people don't have feature phones anymore, no matter what age they are. But in the, the, the UK app, they have made sure that it works with older models. I don't know how much work has been done around that on the, the Google Apple side. I know they've done some fixes because it was draining batteries so fast, but I don't know that those have actually gone out to major testing yet either. I think there have been a few different points brought up at various points along the conversation there that I want to come back to. The first was one you mentioned yourself, Amanda, and that's the fact that um, contact tracing apps are not necessarily the only option here. So if that's the case, what other options do we potentially have available? I think a lot of that isn't technology focused. A lot of it is how they look at uh, the sort of legal and policy issues and how that's managed and how the, the practical sort of old school responses are dealt with. So, you know, looking at specific areas of the country when there's outbreaks going into lockdown, having the individuals I mentioned already, I think it's, it, it was initially 20,000 I heard, but I, I think uh, Boris has said 25,000 this week, people employed. Yeah to be in those um, uh, contact tracing uh, roles. And mm-hmm. that, that in itself is an art form. You know, it's a scientific art form, how they manage uh, the work that those guys do. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, um, I, 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 I was just going to say, I think it was announced on the briefing last night that there's... Um, actually, it was PMQs yesterday. Yeah. That's Boris right. Johnson said it was 24 currently, but it'll be 25 by the 1st of June. Yeah. Those were the num- numbers, yeah. Yeah. 
Mm. And then just um, something you mentioned yourself, Jonathan, was the the potential for this to become more than just a, a sort of tracing app that's used for the virus, the potential that it could grow in scope, it could become something which a lot of people might perceive as, as just invading their civil liberties on a, on a more grand scale. Um, perhaps people's sort of thoughts of sort of combating the disease versus privacy, that, that sort of discrepancy there where it was just over 50 to, to 20% with the figures that I mentioned, um, maybe that would be different if they were aware that by having something more centralised, it could just become another arm of, of the government sort of basically just... <laughs> looking looking out for where you are and what you're doing and, and being able to to keep track of all that, to keep tabs on all that without necessarily your knowledge. Also, the potential of then selling that data to third parties. Yeah, and it's really interesting because if you think of something like ANPR cameras around London or you know, lots of other places, people have or people are relatively happy with with the fact that every time they drive anywhere in the capital. Um, the government knows where, where they are. They know what car they drive, they know what time they came in uh, and out and where, where they went. And people seem quite relaxed about that because there is an ulterior um, motive behind that, which is to you know, control the, the levels of pollution in the capital. And it's great. You know, everybody's happy with that. But that's exactly the same thing as we're talking about here in terms of um, um, pandemic tracking. You know, there's, there's actually very little. So I think it has to be it has to be you know, how it's presented to the to the um, to the people, and in, in the you know it's got to be a good thing. Um, I'm not convinced, based on the the performance of the government so far, that they are capable of doing that because they seem to mess most things up. But but you know it's it's absolutely possible to have a tracking capability that that nobody minds about. Yeah, but isn't that a question of being asked, right? So you have to opt in to put this app on your phone. So you have to be asked. When I'm driving around London, which I don't do anymore, but if I was driving around <laughs> London, um, uh, nobody's asked me if I mind. You know, the CCTV signs might be up there to make sure that my, my data privacy rights are complied with in certain places. But... Uh, if I want to be there, I have to accept it. Whereas the, the difference here is we actually have a choice and that choice is one that has this sort of moral weight to it, that if we don't choose to be part of it, we may be making it, other people ill or even helping to cause hmm. their death. So yeah, as you say, there, there's a kind of moral aspect there where people might feel pressured, but also it depends how you ask them. How many people read the terms mm. and conditions of their latest Apple or Google update? You know, um, it's, it's, it's about how it's about how You're you go about that. You're speaking to the wrong that. person there, Stuart. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think I think I think most people listening to this, it would just be a case of, oh, here's your latest update. Yep, tick accept, tick agree, yeah. and then they do it. Um, whereas with something like this, do you think there's more of an imperative on the public to say, like, look, engage with with this issue engage with what is happening here to ensure that you are happy to, to hand over that because what you're you're essentially handing over is you're essentially handing over your your biological passport you could even argue in, in some in some senses to the government if you do do that um, yes yeah, so well, well i think you know in terms of being asked i think we may get to the stage where where it is compulsory on the basis that if you don't subscribe to this, then you know, you're not necessarily going to be allowed to do lots of things. Um, the example of somebody writing in, could have been The Guardian recently, about um, going home to Hong Kong, where they were 
you know, as soon as they arrive at the airport, they are forced to um, uh, install an app on their phone that connects to the bracelet that they are wearing, for, mm. and then they are they are sent to uh, um, isolation for fourteen days. And the government, you know, uh, controls it, monitors it. So you know, that is a somewhat extreme for us way of doing things. But it could just be that if you don't install the app, and if the government doesn't monitor what you do, then you're not going to be allowed to go to a football match or travel or do anything else it's mm. it's very nine nineteen eighty four. but this seems this seems to me like the the most logical way that we can actually get mass participation events happening again if you can have a means by which you can say right okay we know that this person's had it but they've not got it now they've not been in contact with anyone who's had it right show us your phone flash it to get in at the gate at the football or at the concert or whatever it might be and that seems to me uh, even before that, this was getting sort of spoken about in these terms, this this was something that had already occurred to me. That that seems to me like the most logical way to actually get these things happening again, and that will be a massive driver for the economy, of course. It's a bit Logan's run, isn't it? Having your your crystal that changes colour. Um, Very nice <laughs> reference. Uh, I don't know. I really, I, I still, I don't know what I think entirely about this. You know, I, I go in different directions depending on what I've been reading. But I will say that if it if it's allowing you to go to these mass entertainment events and you want to go and you choose to go despite everything that's happened, it's probably giving you some liberty that without. Uh, that app you know you, you wouldn't have had right so they would keep us in Very lockdown true. longer they wouldn't let these events take place and that that's not it, it again it's a difficult balance because you want the state to protect you here you want to make sure that your government's doing the right thing on the other hand the kind of powers that they've got on the short-term basis are things that would normally have had people going through them with you know a fine tooth comb for weeks and months before they got anywhere near being passed so we are living under a sort of emergency environment where the state has much more control so there does need to be a lot of balance and check there yeah i think that's very true and it's interesting that you can look at it one way or the other you can say yeah our civil liberties are getting totally invaded or you can mm -hmm. say actually we're providing you with a sense of freedom that you wouldn't potentially have under these pandemic conditions very very interesting just on that point of sort of data harvesting and privatization that sort of thing um, I did see that NHSX's chief executive, Matthew Gold, admitted to MPs earlier this month, uh, it was at the Parliament's Human Rights Committee, that data harvested from Britons through the contact tracing app would be uh, pseudonymised? Uh, pseudonymised? Uh, I've never actually <laughs> pronounced that word. Um, but basically putting a sort of false name on it, but by not making it sort of applicable to people and, and, and sort of the data of the individual. That maybe seems to suggest, that, and by handing it to their behavioral science arm as well, um, that that data could potentially be sold on for research. And I think that's where, for a lot of people, there is a big concern here. I mean, do, do either of you guys have, have any sort of insight into that? I, I, don't, I don't have any insight, but it just seems just seems sort of the most obvious thing that at some point will happen we we talked about earlier that you know nobody reads the t's and c's or, or sorry mostly mm. most people don't read the t's <laughs> and c's excuse me because uh, <laughs> uh, i don't um and and you know i, I can see that some coverall clause will be inserted into the into the terms 
um, that 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 gives the government the ability to 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 you know, do stuff with this with this uh, data at some point because there's going to be huge amounts of interesting things in there. Um, and and I just fear the temptation will be, and it, it'll be done under a little bit of cloak and a dagger. I, I fear that that it will be um, used for other things. And once once the genie is out of the uh, a bottle, it's it's you know it's 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 impossible to actually stop it happening. It'll it'll it, it'll get spread far and wide, and and sadly, I think it will be abused. Uh, that's that, that does seem a bit worrying. Uh, just want to have a look at this test run in the Isle of Wight as well. And I know we have already said that you can't read too much into things at this early stage. There is so much scrutiny on this, despite it being at the stage that it's at. But I, I believe some work anomaly did actually, Jonathan. Uh, during the test run, did you guys not find that only 40% of the island's residents were recorded to have downloaded the app and that quite a lot of them face technical difficulties? Is that Have I got those figures right? I, I, it's not. It's not our, our research. It's actually um, somebody else's. I, I think um, the first week in May, only forty percent had downloaded the app, and, and of course, that's you know that's that's attempted to download load it. Uh, as you said, I'm sure. I'm sure there are there are there are people who've you know failed to install it or not done something right, and I'd be very surprised if forty percent of those. Of those downloads were 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 um sorry sorry if a hundred percent of those downloads were actually up and working correctly so I suspect at that point the number of active users was much less than forty percent and again somebody else's figure this could be the government's figure that that they have to get to um sixty percent cr- critical mass before the before the sort of tipping point um kick kicks in and 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 it, and it becomes um you know a, a, a sort of usable uh, sample size. I don't know. Amanda mm. may have yeah, better in, uh, on that. Who knows whose info is correct right now, right? Yes. It's the same with everything <laughs> that anybody tells us. So lies, damn lies, and statistics. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. So from what I know, what I've heard, there's eighty thousand people have downloaded and are using the app in the Isle of Wight, which I think is about fifty percent of the population. Um, and I'm sure it didn't work when it first got downloaded, and that was the whole point of doing it there and not giving it to all of us. It's being mm-hmm. tested. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand that there's quite a lot of older people there, so they are seeing that older people are taking it up as well, which is great. How do they know? You don't have to put your age in, do you? No, I don't know. I assume that they, they're able to correlate somehow with that population. I don't know what they're gathering on that population and whether they've agreed to give anything more because it's part of a testing thing or not. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. Who, who knows? I've just well, looked well. up, though. Google is <laughs> well, your friend sometimes, Stuart. I've just looked <laughs> up, and I'm going to try and say it's pseudonymized data. And the information commissioner says that it can still be personal data, right? What's Mm. interesting about that, said the ex-lawyer, is that it means that your data protection rights, your data privacy is still protected in that the GDPR, et cetera, has to be complied Mm -hmm. with. Mm-hmm. So that that's really interesting because what I've heard constantly is, you know, it will be that the UK's app will be data protection compliant. Um, and I suppose it comes back to something you said earlier, Stuart, who do you trust with your data? Big companies that are constantly being sued across the world for breaches of data protection by the local information commissioner or the UK government. Mm. And I'm not saying that I trust the UK government either, but if you had to pick, 
who would you pick? Well, yeah, no, I think that's one thing. But a, a, another aspect of it for me is to do with the branding, because the UK government's brand's uh, pretty much flagging at the moment. I think it's, I think it's safe to say. Mm. Uh, but the idea that it's the NHSX app, people have yes. so much more confidence in the NHS name. Mm-hmm. And when you consider that the the Tories got back in by essentially reducing their electoral platform to three words of get Brexit done, then it just goes to show that that just having the name right could make such a difference in people's confidence. But is it it, it not a third party organisation that's actually developing? developing it it's not no 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 it's nhsx that are doing it yeah and they've been working like dogs through this i can tell you they've really busted a gut on it what is the history of um, mobile phone app development i think they've released a standard in the last few weeks giving guidance on how to create apps for the the healthcare sector and i know there's been I know there's been a lot of historic work. I don't have the stats, but I know they've done a lot of work historically in this area. Not in COVID, but in apps for the NHS. Mm. Um, because, yeah, my concern is that um, you know, the NHS does not do app, does not do mobile phone app development. Yeah. And that, that is a you know, complete scale on, you know, on its own. So yeah, whilst, but not whilst, wanting... whilst they do have a great brand, mm. why are they developing it? Well, I think because they've got a team who are specifically on board as the digital part of the NHS, hence the X being a separate NHSX unit of experts and specialists. So that's their job to do this kind of stuff. Mm. It's just come under the microscope like many things because of the pandemic. Um, And, you know, they do have this standard that's been released. I was going to say something else to you there and I'm sort of losing my train of thought. Um, Carry on, Jonathan, I'll come back to you when I remember. I, I, I think I'd feel a lot happier if it was an organisation that had a long track record of, of, of developing such apps. Um, you know, I, don't know, I don't know much about NHS X at all. I've never come mm. across an app they've developed before. I suspect 99.9% of the UK population is the same. Yeah, I'm in a different position because obviously, you know, I know NHSX, they have only existed as that brand for something like a year to 18 months. So it's not surprising you haven't come across them in that form Um, and that their job is to be the digital development arm for the NHS. You know, and they've brought together people who've worked on that historically. And I've remembered what I was going to say. A few weeks ago, I actually joined a procurement slash application process because the the tech sector has been amazing in its response to COVID-19 and lots and lots of people have offered the NHS different tools that they themselves have. And Open UK has a very strong legal and policy group and I've been pressuring them, the organisation have been pressuring them to release it as an open source app. Um, so we went down the, the road of volunteering our legal and policy group to help shape the governance around that if it was needed. So I actually filled out all the forms and they had all these forms online really designed for contributions of tech. So they're not just using what they're developing themselves, but they're harvesting some of these donations from people who are experts across the UK in different things that they might not normally do. Well, that seems really positive. So can you give us some tangible examples? So I don't know what they've actually used yet because they've only been going down that, you know, they've built and started that process. 
Okay, well, let's talk. Let's talk about more generally then, just about sort of for people listening to this who might not know about open source development. Talk about some of the advantages and, and kind of innovation sort of element that could come in through that, that that could be advantageous both in terms of speed and in terms of the efficacy of getting this app right. Mm. It's interesting. One of the things that was in the Guardian was that the Google Apple app, which I don't. The, the APIs have been released. I don't know, but I don't believe they're open source, uh, which means that they're only visible and only usable and licensed to those who are formerly part of this Google Apple Gapple project. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you've got 22 countries starting. One of the things they're saying is great is that it's interoperable, which means that if you're moving across borders and things from one country to the other, you're on the same system, which makes sense. But if you're going to be on different systems, which inevitably is going to happen, you know, there's only the 22 out of however many countries in the world um, actually participating, or countries and states, um, you can make the software interoperable because you have visibility of an open source app. You can see what's there, you can see the code, and you can make sure that you make your code work together if you need to. So that transparency and visibility allows interoperability, but it also allows people to go in and comment on the code. And as soon as we at Open UK were able to announce the NHSRX app was open on the 7th of May, people were starting to respond in social media that they'd been into GitHub, they'd been looking through the app, they were responding with comments. And uh, Terence, who's already come up, Terence had a blog a couple of days later, you know, actually saying comments, welcome, give us your feedback. So you don't have to be part of a formal testing thing like you do with the, the Gapple API. You, if you know what you're doing, you can go in and you can have a look and you can comment or you can offer your contributions up. So um, uh, one of the things that uh, Terence's blog said is that the power of open source comes from our ability to collaborate with talented people. And, you know, to make things better, you should make it open. And unlike making things better, you're not just creating something for the UK there. Any other country that wants to take the work that's been done in the UK and make it better or use it differently can do that. Any organisation that wants to. And that reuse under the MIT licence is thanks to it being open. So it's a, what we call a permissive license in open source. It's a license that has very few requirements, but allows reuse of the, the software. Yeah, the software itself has got copyright, so you can't just take it and use it, even if it's public, without that license. Okay, um, so that kind of mitigates one of the questions that I was about to ask, which was about security <laughs> concerns. Um, another aspect that comes into this is the fact, obviously, Brexit is happening. Uh, and there's mm. there's obviously been some moves forward w- with with that in, in recent days. So let's um, let's hypothesise then that uh, this gets ruled out countrywide, and that, that most people see a, a good a good strong ninety percent of the population uh, have access to the app and, and start using it and that kind of thing. Does that then play into, do do you think, the UK's wider sort of thing of controlling the borders and that kind of thing and the the idea of immigration and people even coming to visit on a holiday? Are you going to, so if you're a Spanish person or even an expat living in Spain wanting to come home for a visit, are you going to have to download the NHSXX app potentially to be able to come over here? Could you foresee a situation where that's the case? It, it, it's actually worse than that. Uh, Anomaly has a large office in Belfast. Mm-hmm. And you know, it looks like um, the, the Re- Repub- Republic of Ireland are going on the decentralised approach and 
the North will obviously have the UK's centralized version. So the two, the two apps will be will, will almost certainly be incompatible. And of course, there is freedom of movement across the border. So it's not even about holiday mm. makers. It's about people going about their daily life, you know, buying petrol from the petrol station across the way because it's cheaper. You know, I'm going to be really controversial, Jonathan. Should we be moving about like that and going across borders if we're still using this app? Should we not just be staying where we are? It's a fact of life in, in, in the island of Ireland. You, you can't, this, this is, mm. we could go on for hours about this, but yeah, fact of uh, life. Yeah, hard, not, the hard border debate has been done. Mm. <laughs> yeah, <I think> so. <laughs> yeah, not for today. But, but, but you know, it, 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 it is an everyday issue rather than you know, a mm. two weeks in the sun every year. Um, and, and, you know, things like that don't appear to have been taken into, into consideration at all. Mm. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think there's there's got to be a consideration of some wider things. And if one thing's been proven in this pandemic so far, it's that, that there seems to be a lack of lateral thinking <laughs> with certain sort of stages of the process from the UK government, which is maybe one of the good reasons that this is open source and has been developed in, in the way that it is, to be honest. Um, did you have something you were going to come in on there, Amanda? No, I, it's just uh, so difficult, the the whole concept of people moving around again. Um, we talked before about people's liberties and freedoms and wanting to be able to move around. Uh, and you're talking about the UK government's approach and obviously Europe and Scotland and the approach is slightly different. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think they want people going over the border right now. Uh, just a, I do personally wonder, I understand the inevitability from the north and south of Ireland and, you know, I'm not being insensitive to their situation, but generally sh- we shouldn't be going across borders yet, surely. I know I also see the planes going over, Jonathan. Hmm. But I like to assume they're full of cargo. No, 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 I get that. I, I don't, <laughs> don't, don't want to get too bogged down in that. Um, I'm just going to go back to some of the weaknesses that were, were identified um, in, in this trial because I think you guys can, can really shine a light on some of that. So uh, one of the things was some weaknesses in the registration process, which could potentially allow attackers, attackers to steal encryption keys, and that would then allow them to potentially prevent users from being notified if a contact tested positive for COVID-19. So essentially the whole premise of the app could therefore be nullified. Um, so that's one thing. Another thing is the idea that storing unencrypted data and handsets and that could then, we've kind of hinted at this already, potentially be used by law enforcement agencies to determine uh, if, if there was a mass gathering of people or not, you know, um, so maybe using it more as a police kind of tool. Um, and another sort of more technical one is uh, gen- generating a random ID code for users once a day rather than once every 15 minutes, as the GAPL model did. Um, that longer gap and, and working it that way, theoretically, could make it possible for someone to determine if a user is having an affair with someone or, you, you know, they're like, I mean, it could potentially be used in ways that it's not meant to be. And it is the idea of centralizing it and, and, and building it in the way that it's being built. It just seems like there are, there are holes in this that if the right hacker, the right attacker was to exploit, they could essentially have a field day. And I know that's something that you've been looking at quite acutely, Jonathan. And, and that, of course, is true of every piece of software that exists in the world. Um, there's, there's nothing different here. You know, there are 
all software has bugs and all you know pretty much all software has um has security issues um there are there are only secure when they're turned off um so so i mean yes we we are we are we're going to have to assume that there are going to be issues like that certainly in the in the early days um goes back a little bit to what i was saying earlier on it's all about getting it right and not necessarily being first out with it um yeah, I mean, I mean, there are. I think there are a whole range of different things that, in ways that the the app can be abused, and and, and not not necessarily through 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 bugs or, or or security holes. I mean, one of the things that I thought about was, um, I I describe it as a false positive attack, and so you know you're you're you know, you're queuing in traffic, and sometime in the future when there's lots of cars on the road. You're queuing in traffic. The um, person coming the other way, you know, it's just just on the other side side of the road. They they are um, positive. Their phone connects to yours. Like you know, we've, we've we've all sat in the car and seen other 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 Bluetooth phones around us or Bluetooth devices around us. Your two phones connect, flags up as being false positive, and and then you both carry on on your way. Um, I mean, clearly there's you know there's, there's two panes of glass between you, so so you absolutely aren't. Uh, uh, um, 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 positive, but false positives like that are just an inevitability of um, of, of this this the, you know of the way this app works. I don't think there's anything we can do to get around things like that, bugs mm. or no bugs. Doesn't the centralised model help with that? Because there is the level of gatekeeping. I'm not saying that I prefer one over the other, but just practically. If you have that level of gatekeeping, it will be able to identify sort of traffic movement type closeness that you are not as close, therefore don't need the alert, as opposed to the physical distance, which the, the decentralized one will just see that you're, you're close enough, therefore you are going to get the alert. Isn't that one of the advantages of centralized? How does it know the context? It doesn't know. Well, it, it'll know the context because generally you'll be moving, right? You'll be moving at a pace because you're in a car. And then but you're, no, you're queuing in traffic. So yeah, the idea is. Yeah, okay. And there's going to be. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I suppose they'll see the proximity. I mean, uh, I don't know what algorithms the they're feeding yeah. into it, but they, they'll see that, you know, there's rows and rows of people in proximity with these things switched on. Mm. But it could be a crowd. Yeah, 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 yeah. Crowd of people. Yeah, so. yeah. Sure it's going to be difficult. I think that's the one mm. thing that, that's going to happen, and it's not going to be perfect. Even probably mm-hmm. when it's rolled out, it's going to be one of these things that I think is going to be getting cons- constantly updated. But just in terms of the methodology being applied, mm. um, one of the big sort of feedback points from the the trial in the Isle of Wight was that there's maybe a bit of a fundamental rethink required on on a couple of aspects of it so we've mentioned the centralized decentralized sort Mm -hmm. of part of the debate but also around the legalities of it so maybe bringing in new legal protections for anyone who has access to the data now matt hancock has said that the data protection act will cover it all but surely with something that is as comprehensive as this you have to look at it and i know you've got lots of legal expertise amanda you're, you're going to have to look at it in a, a different way but do you also have to, to couch the thinking differently if you see what i mean in terms of the way that you're approaching it i wouldn't have thought so um i know that's probably not the answer you're expecting it's obviously really important um but the nhs in the uk complies with gdpr in the way that it deals with sensitive data 
and it's been doing that for a long time. Mm. So, you know, I think at least from their perspective, they're quite well equipped to deal with it. And each state is probably in the same position, whether it's a, you know, a US state or a country. Um, the big corporates have also been working for a long time with our health data through IoT devices, so they at least should know how to deal with it. Mm. There, there was just not wanting to be too much of a scaremonger, but there was that massive mm. cyber attack in the NHS, was it three mm-hmm. years ago, um, where I think it was about 100 million quid worth of damage financially but not just that the idea that the patients and and nhs service users data was vulnerable mm. how i mean this is obviously this this is the sort of digital innovation arm we should stress it's not it's not your average sort of hospital computer which i've spoken hmm. to nurses a lot of the equipment there is dating back to the start of this century and, and even hmm. beyond like some of it is really in dire need of, mm. of being updated but do you think people's confidence in the NHS brand will be enough to mitigate sort of obviously that hack a few years ago, which I think scared a lot of people? I can't speak for the population. I think it's going to be a wait and see and see what the uptake is. Um, It's a balance, right? Uh, We don't have a lot of choices right now. If we want to use all the tools that are available to us, there's going to be some level of risk, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. Are there any other sort of big risks, Jonathan, given your sort of research into it that you think are worth mentioning at this point? Yeah, I, I think in, in the early days, um, one of the things that concerns me, and, and it's, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's because it's only been released in the Alawite, it may be unfounded yet, but you know, I don't know where to get the app from, okay? And now I'm sure the government will do a lot of um, promotion of, of you know, when, when they release it and where you need to get this app from. But there's going to be a whole swathe of false um, websites, um, mm. uh, you know, telling everyone this is where this is the official site. There will, there will be, um, I can't think of the, the word I'm at at the moment. Um, you know, you know look alike, um, um, typo squatting type domain. Yeah, yeah, which yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yes, you know, it'll be nhs.g0v.uk or you know something like like that. And so. Mm-hmm. Um, there will be, you know, waves of attacks of um, rogue domains. You know, people will 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 be tempted into putting in far too much info, far too much personal info. Um, I suspect there will be uh, rogue apps developed that, that you know are, are very small, and you you will download, install it, and then your phone is compromised, and then you know, the, the 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 app won't do anything else, but 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 your phone is compromised. So um, the government's going to have to be um, very, very um, um, careful is, is one, one word, but um, have a, a massive campaign to try and ensure that everybody only goes to one site, only downloads, downloads one app. Um, it's going to be like the explanation minimize. of R, isn't it? So you know how we, um, we've, we've seen Matt Hancock and Co at length explaining R and that little animation they had. <laughs> It's mm-hmm. going to be something equivalent with Matt Hancock explaining to us how to use app stores so your granny would understand it. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, I, think, I think that's, uh, that's kind of two problems for the price of one there. So it's the <laughs> you, get, you get this out, um, you, you try and get this out to the people that are, are going to be needing it most probably, which is your older sort of group who are, are obviously most at risk. And 
uh, say you, your um, older relative does actually have the disease, then you can't go in and just download mm-hmm. it on their mobile for them, you know? So are there going to have to be teams of either health professionals or at least people who are technologically versed enough and with the appropriate PPE and equipment, which we know is a completely other debate, which is, has mm. gone on and on and on. Mm. Um, but are we going to have to have teams of people who are going out and saying, right, maybe the government buys a million mobile phones for the elderly and says, right, we're going to give you this and it's got the app on it, you know, and actually gives those out smartphones given out so that people can be tracked. But then where's the proof that they're going to necessarily have the app activated, not accidentally put it off. It just and, and, to, oh, sorry, and you go. I was going to say and, and and carry the phone all day, every day in the, in the, mm-hmm. uh, pocket. I mean, you know, I, I'm I'm sure the three of us carry our phone all the time, mm-hmm. but I'm absolutely sure that you know the majority of people over the age of seventy don't. It's probably switched off half the time to conserve the battery life. You know, things like that. And I think you get back with that to the the essence of this which I do think is really important, that this is one of a number of tools that will be used to fight COVID-19 and the pandemic, and that it can only work in conjunction with a whole range of other stuff. And that maybe in 50 years time, if this had happened, you know, your 70 year old would be, that wouldn't be me, I'd be 100. But you would, you know, somebody (laughs) that age group would know how to use a phone and it would be different. We are pushing the boundaries of technology and our technology use, which is great. Yeah, But it's only part of it. I think that's true. And just on the battery life topic, though, how much of the battery life does this take up? Because if it strikes me that an app that is so sort of self-aware, for want of a better term, mm-hmm. constantly knowing location and pinging and doing all of that sort of techie stuff, which is above my head, if it's doing all of that, then battery lives on certain brands of phone anyway are notoriously poor. So if you've got that mm-hmm. then compounded by having this app, see, which is going to be a drain in the battery life, it, it, just the design of the thing and how comprehensive it is it's going to be. Um, that's another thing that I imagine to be one of the one of the big things that's going to have to be mitigated by the developers here is how to minimise battery usage by this app. Is that is that accurate? Uh, I, I think I think the way it's designed to use Bluetooth LE, Bluetooth Low Energy, is um, is is the best way that you could do, do this in terms of battery consumption because because it's 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 built into the phone. It's been there for. I don't know how many years, probably five years or so, mm-hmm. and it's pretty well known. And 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 you know, your phone uses Bluetooth all the time to to uh, talk to um, devices that are nearby. So I actually don't think it'll have. I think either centralized or decentralized won't have too much effect on the battery life, and unless unless the app's been written badly, of course. Yeah. But the, the concept, I I think it won't be a massive drain on the battery life. Mm. I think it was, and that's one of the things that has delayed Gapple, and they specifically called it out in their release yesterday, is that they've tried to fix some, it doesn't say all, but some of the issues that were causing a massive drain on battery life. And I think it's one of the things that's meant that we've not had this before, you know, the time that it's taken. Um, Because you've got this app has to actually be active to be working. I think the the thing here is that we have a virus to contend with which simply does not show itself for a number of days, right? It's covert when you've got it, you don't know. Yep. And they've had to try and find a way 
to trace who you have been in contact with at scale because there's the whole 60 million of us needing something done about it, needing our, our movements to be shareable somehow. And using this app allows the NHS to do that for us. Whether you're ever going to be comfortable from a data privacy perspective is, is going to be each individual's own decision, balancing that against the, the need for us all to work together and cooperate on it. I was going to avoid this as, as, as a topic, but obviously one of the big concerns for loads of people is that the NHS is going to end up sort of privatised on, on some kind of mass scale. Do you think mm-hmm. that all of these innovations play into the hands of that? God, I'm kind of hoping it's going to go the opposite way and that thanks to the pandemic, the NHS is now going to be taken a lot more seriously by government and much better funded. I mean, everybody needs it. And the consequence of individuals not having access to healthcare is really clear now. Mm. And, and, and I think not wanting to... to um get into another can of worms so late in the, in the, uh, in, in the podcast. I think, it, I think we need to depoliticize the NHS. You know, it, it needs mm-hmm. to stop being made a political pawn because we now understand, or finally we realize that it is probably the most important organization we have in the UK. The most important anything we have in the UK is, in my opinion, the yeah. proudest achievement yeah. in this country. That's an opinion that I will stand by until the National Health Service is no more. And regular listeners to the podcast will remember the stark warnings from Rob McGrath, who works within the NHS, in episode three in terms of the future of the health service and how things are looking. But that's it for section one of this episode nine, two-part special on the NHS X Track and Trace app. So... Although the need to work together to beat coronavirus remains the same, the goalposts have very much moved, given that we now know that the government has abandoned this project. And episode 9, part 2, will break down exactly the reasons why that might have happened, and where that leaves us as a nation moving forward. As mentioned earlier, Amanda will be rejoining us, this time alongside Paul Bernal, who's Associate Professor of Law at the University of East Anglia. But that's all for today, so thanks for listening and continuing to support my Corona podcast. Thanks to all the regular listeners. I'm so, so grateful um, for everyone that listens in to every episode. It really makes this worth doing. And for anyone who's tuning in for the first time or for the second time, they maybe got into the podcast through the very popular Stuart Webber pod in episode eight then please i hope that you've you've enjoyed this it's obviously a different subject matter this time and if you do like it i would be really grateful if you could like share and subscribe on all of the social channels on your podcast app whatever you're doing and tell your friends about the pod if you like what i'm doing here because obviously i'm doing this in the hope that people listen to it um, just for everyone who isn't aware, we can now be found on all of the main podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. We're on social media as well, on Twitter, at MyCoronaPod, and on Facebook, you can find us by searching for My Corona Podcast by Hodgie the Hack. But that's all Troop and Troopettes. I've been Hodgie the Hack, will continue to be Hodgie the Hack, and we will be back later in the week with part two all about this app. But until then, as ever, stay safe and stay sane.